Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome, everyone. My name is Victor Monin, and today I'm welcoming James Poskett, Associate Professor in History of Science and Technology at the University of Warwick. And we are going to talk about uh, his most recent book, uh, just recently published in 2022, Horizons, A Global History of Science. Uh, so first of all, uh, Professor, thank you so much uh, for joining me today. Uh, and having accepted my invitation to discuss uh, to discuss your book, um, could you please begin by sharing with us just a little bit about your research trajectory and what led you to uh, researching this book and uh, and publishing it uh, on the global history of science and and what that what does that mean? What is the global history of, of science and how does that differ from history of science uh, per se? Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, so my research trajectory is that uh, I was an undergraduate in the natural sciences. So I have a sciences uh, undergraduate degree. Uh, but at the end of that, I specialized in the history and philosophy of science in the Department of History and Philosophy of Science at Cambridge. And that sort of had me hooked on the more social, political side of science. Uh, so I was fortunate enough to do a PhD there. And I did my PhD on the history of phrenology, which was a very popular 19th century science of the mind. Uh, and I actually, this relates to your question because that was a global history of phrenology. So I was playing with what it meant to write a global history during my PhD, but in a slightly more focused way, just looking at the 19th century and this, this very particular science. Uh, after I'd done that and published my first book, I then thought about how to scale things up a bit which led me to write this book and really attempt to tell the story of the origins of modern science from a global perspective and what i mean that means lots of things uh but at its very core it means challenging the standard history of the origins of modern science which is centered pretty much exclusively on europe uh, so normally the history, both professional histories of science, but also popular histories of science, tell us a narrative that modern science developed in early modern Europe in the 15th, 16th centuries. Uh, it was the work of great minds like Newton and Copernicus. Maybe there was some important social and political change happening at that time, the Reformation and so on. Uh, but nonetheless, it's a European story. Whereas Partly what the global history of science is about and what my book tries to do 
is show that that story is inadequate, it's incomplete at the very least, and that to properly understand the origins of modern science from, say, the 15th century to today, we need to recognize and incorporate the ideas, the contributions, and the cultures of the world beyond Europe. Uh, and the core argument of my book is that modern science was made through that process of global cultural exchange, that you can't understand how science came about by just looking at Europe. You need to incorporate uh, that much more diverse story, diverse geographically and diverse culturally. Like your, your, your tone here is, is a little bit less um, intense than the book itself, because I thought like the, the very first uh, pages of the book refer to that 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 traditional narrative of science as uh, essentially a European invention, right? Uh, not so much as an inaccurate picture uh, of, of, of science, but as a myth. And, and I, um, obviously here, I think the, the, the importance of using the, the, the word myth, that it has uh, a lot of undertones that I think you want, uh, you, you want the readership to pick up. Uh, and um, I mean, my, my question is, why is it a myth? In, in what sense here uh, are you talking about a, a myth for that for that particular narrative centered around Europe? And also, how can we explain that such a myth has been so resilient? Because, uh, I mean, if you want to comment maybe on, on how your book relates to more recent scholarship in, in history of science, but how it, it contrasts also with uh, the kind of story we're still seeing and we're still hearing about science. Yeah, so thank you for picking me up on... Uh, sometimes I'm feeling more polemical and sometimes I'm feeling less polemical. But certainly when I was writing the book and and, and generally I, I feel like describing that traditional story as a myth. And you're right, I chose that word because it has undertones that, yeah, might provoke readers but do get to the heart of what I think the problem is. And... The idea that modern science was invented in Europe wasn't just um, an unfortunate error. It was a quite carefully crafted story that was produced from the 19th century onwards when European imperialism was expanding, particularly British and French imperialism in North Africa, in Egypt, in Asia. And it was part of this story that there was something fundamentally different about the East and the West. And the East had advanced scientific uh, and political cultures in the ancient world, the medieval world, but had entered this state of decline. And it was the role of Europe and European empires to quote unquote, civilize or return in fact, civilization to these places. And then that story really gets reinforced even more in the in the Cold War, at least in the middle of the 20th century, when divides between East and West are even um, more strongly interpreted in political terms. It's a struggle between capitalism and communism. And what I call the idea of the scientific revolution, this idea that there was a fundamental transformation of science in, say, the 15th, 16th centuries, um, I call it a convenient fiction. Uh, so again, that sort of similar language, uh, because it again was used for quite explicit political purposes. It was the idea that the West, and in fact, particularly Western Europe, 
this is why this is kind of clustered around um, Western Europe, the traditional story, had a special claim to not just um, civilization, but modernity and progress. And so that Western European culture was allegedly on the right side of history that it was the royal road to scientific progress. And of course, by the mid-20th century, scientific, scientific and technical achievements had been cemented as a measure of the success of political systems. Uh, and it's only really in the mid-20th century that the term scientific revolution starts to begin to be used regularly um, in popular culture, but also amongst academics. So there's this, this quite carefully crafted narrative that serves... In the 19th century, really imperial purposes. In the 20th century, more uh, sort of Anglo-American, Western European, um, anti-communist purposes. And as I as I make the case in the book, well, that narrative may have been useful in the mid 20th century, but we don't live in that world anymore. So it's not really fit for purpose. So that's one of the reasons it it persisted. I suppose the the slightly other counterintuitive aspect of this is. That narrative also became very popular in the decolonizing world, in the world beyond Europe. So it's not just that this Eurocentric narrative is, is something that was popular in Britain and the United States, which might surprise no one. Uh, it was also kind of popular in places like Egypt and India and Turkey and China uh, for the for actually sort of parallel reasons that it implied that there was this once great scientific past say a golden age of islamic science or a golden age of hindu or chinese science in the medieval or ancient period and that these new independent nations particularly or these new nations that were forming or had had some other kind of political revolution like in communist china that these new political leaders would be able to recover something that had been lost. Uh, and so that idea of recovering a lost heritage was very um, attractive to nationalist political leaders in the 20th century, and it still is very attractive to nationalist political leaders in places like China and India um, today. What's, what's particularly interesting, I think, uh, I mean, considering this this carefully crafted narrative as you mentioned and how it has been also coincidentally used in, in different contexts as you mentioned uh, apart from uh, the United States or Europe um but what's interesting is that I think uh and and your book uh uses and 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 brings to light all of this amazing scholarship that has been done in the history of science uh, uh that that actually in, in my view but you can correct me on this maybe on um, uh emerged from the realization that this carefully crafted narrative was actually full of holes and 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 uh and and was raising question actually and and asked and begged to see the history of science in more dynamic ways and uh transnationally etc right um but at the same time that this scholarship that your book brings together and articulates together um was being done i, I think in the history of science also was uh historians were going through that phase where they were asking themselves, can we even write grand narratives anymore? Is it even possible now? Because it appears that this leads us into uh, writing very questionable stories, 
right? And we should actually do maybe focus on more micro histories or reduce scales or, or change or change our approach and think in terms of networks or things like that. Mm. So, so it's interesting because your book actually, you know, attempts at, uh, um, it, it, it attempts this grand narrative again, right? But, but it show it's trying to show that maybe it's, it's possible. What, 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 have, what has been your, your trajectory? I mean, considering how, how tricky and how, how dangerous in a way, right? It might be to, to attempt a grand narrative going through so many continents and spanning across uh, six, seven centuries. Uh, yeah, you raise, you raise a number of important kind of intellectual questions and I guess uh, maybe sort of personality questions as well about how you, how you end up doing something like this. You're right that the work, the book is a way, um, it mixes primary source work with a lot of synthesis. So there is all this um, fantastic literature on the history of science in different places in the world, whether it's in you know 18th century India, 20th century Japan, and so on and so forth. Uh, but exactly as you say, as historians of science were writing those kinds of things, they were also telling themselves or telling each other or telling their graduate students that there was no real way you could write a big picture narrative. And in fact, the problem with the history of science, uh, as it was understood in the 80s and 90s and even early 2000s, was to punch holes in those grand narratives, the origins of modern science, the scientific revolution, all these became very unfashionable uh, things to even think about. And instead, this turn towards the micro, the local. Um, and I suppose career-wise was at the, the transition there because I was being taught bits of this global history of science in terms of I'd learn a little bit about India, maybe a little bit about Egypt, um, but not much. I was being told that everything was local, that the scientific revolution, there was no such thing. Um, but this was, this was also a narrative that was past its sell-by date. And I, for me, actually, politically, it, in the 21st century at least, it was no longer helpful to keep saying that science was really local and that there were no big narratives anymore because we were ceding ground to people that had alternative and much more, uh, in my view, politically unsavory uh, visions of the world and grand narratives. So unless historians of science were going to shut themselves in ivory towers in um, the two Cambridges forever then we needed to get out there and craft politically meaningful big pictures again. And that's, that's in part what my book tries to do. It tries to take account of the concerns about grand narratives. Um, and I talk a lot about things like power, empire, racism, um, inequality in the book. In fact, the book kind of gets almost more uh, depressing as you go through it. So it's not a naive view of globalization. Uh, but nonetheless, I think you can tell a bigger narrative about how modern science developed and how it came to be. And that's important because if you don't, then someone else will. Uh, and that that's the thing that I've become increasingly concerned about. And a lot of my academic work at the minute actually is about trying to return to a question that um, the historian of science, uh, Jim Secord, who was my PhD supervisor, 
asked back in 1993, which was about the big picture and the history of science and how to write big history and um, big picture histories of science whilst drawing on the lessons of the social and cultural history of science of the 80s and 90s. Uh, and that, I mean, that is my project at the minute, basically, to think to think through that even more. Now, this is this is very interesting because uh, I think yes, what while reading the book and and you you just highlighted all these themes: imperialism, power, inequalities, racism. Um, really, also what what I thought was interesting about the book itself was not so much the narrative; it's it's trying to convey uh, what is the perspective it's trying to convey in for the history of science. It's also it 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 made the voice of historians of science a little bit more uh, present and just ask the question what's their what's the responsibility of that body of knowledge and of uh that know-how in researching the and in, in researching the history of science but maybe if we have time I'll, I'll go back to this question I, I'd like to just now maybe go a little bit more into the into the content of the book and, and the weeds of it and and like and I'd like to do it in a in a specific way, because there are a few sentences that just uh, uh, um, made me stop, uh, and and I thought they were very interesting because I think if you uh, if you comment on them, you might be able to you know show us a little bit what the the book is about and, and the breadth of of facts and uh, you know ideas it conveys. Um, in, uh, in in the first chapters, in the first part of the book. Um, where you talk about uh, the period of, of the, the grand voyages uh, and discoveries of, uh, quote unquote, the discoveries of uh, the, the, the Americas. Um, you write, uh, and I'm quoting, Aristotle had never seen a tomato, let alone an Aztec palace and an Inca temple. It was this revolution which brought about a fundamental shift in how Europeans understood science, end quote. So I, I was stuck by <laughs> with this Aristotle had never seen a tomato and and it and somehow this has sparked a shift right uh, you're right um, so help me help me understand here or or, or you know um, uh, guide our, our listeners through that um, line of thought how Aristotle not seeing a tomato uh, here represents a, a major maybe. A fact or, or thing to remember when we're thinking about the history of science in global terms. Yeah, thanks for that. And um, the book uh, does have a sort of dark sense of humor throughout it as well, which so I'm pleased you picked up on that. Um, but I hope readers will um, as well. Uh, Aristotle had never seen a tomato, he'd never seen a potato, he'd never seen a pineapple or a chili. And the reason I highlight this is because before say the 15th century before Europeans went to the Americas for the first time and began to colonize it and bring back natural products from it almost all authoritative sources of knowledge including scientific knowledge were ancient texts so rather counterintuitively for us today in the modern world if you wanted to know something, you wouldn't go and necessarily do an experiment or make an observation. You would read, discuss, analyze, for sure. It's not just taking at face value, but you would look to ancient sources. And that basically meant the writings of the ancient Greeks uh, and to a lesser extent Romans, but ancient Greek philosophers and thinkers like Aristotle, uh, like Plato, 
like Ptolemy, the astronomer, uh, as well as geographers and natural historians like Pliny. Uh, or you would look at the Bible, which of course was another ancient text and had religious significance as well. And this continued for a long time, but the colonization and for the Europeans, the quote-unquote discovery of the Americas, suddenly threw this methodology into question because none of the ancients knew about the Americas. They didn't mention them in their texts. So this was just this sort of overwhelming moment where suddenly the elite thinkers in Europe are being presented with undeniable evidence that there are things in the world, there are things in the universe that Aristotle did not know. And therefore, maybe one of the ways in which you acquire true knowledge is not simply by looking at ancient texts, but by observing the world. And that's that shift from the sort of more deductive reasoning of the medieval university to the more inductive experimental exploratory reasoning of modern science and that's that shift but but for me the argument is aristotle hadn't seen the tomato that doesn't happen without the americas and in fact it also doesn't happen without the knowledge that the people of the americas had about those things yeah i think you your book goes further than this right because if um if um because the argument that the Americas and all the facts that it provided or the new facts that it provided um, uh, encouraged an experimental method rather than um, rather than a reading method, right? Or com comments on, on ancient texts. Uh, it's already part of that carefully crafted narrative that you mentioned at the very beginning, right? I think what, what, what really uh, um, changes the argument uh, in the case of your book, is the fact that you introduced new actors as well, right? It's that it's not just about Europeans discovering a new continent and then questioning uh, what they have thought to be their previous source of, of knowledge, uh, but there are also uh, other actors and other dynamics also at play. Could you maybe like talk a little bit about that? Yeah, this is really important, and it was a slightly difficult place to start the book because actually the Americas, as you say, do feature in some of the traditional stories of the history of science, but they feature just as the tomato, just as stuff. But of course, there were people and cultures and indeed quite advanced scientific medical cultures in the Americas. So what I do in the book is really foreground the pre-existing, uh, particularly Mexica, the Aztec world of knowledge production, much of which was written down in Aztec codices, as well as the actual people, people like Martin de la Cruz, who was a indigenous Mexica physician born before the Spanish conquest, but then ends up in a Spanish theological college. And it's his, it's just one example, but his writings about things like tomatoes um, and other plants and animals from the Americas that inform that shift. So as you say, and as I kind of emphasized, I guess, at the end of what I was saying last time, um, it's not just the tomatoes, it's actually Europeans need the people and the cultures of the Americas to inform them about 
that world. There is another um, another quote I want to I want to uh, <laughs> ask you to comment. Yeah, go for it. All right, I like this. This one, this one is less uh, humorous, obviously, uh, and it refers to the second part of your book that focuses on on the question of the uh, enlightenment, right? Or the period of the enlightenment. Uh, and this the, the first uh, the first sentence you write for that uh, for that part. Uh, quote. Isaac Newton in, uh, invested in the slave trade. End of sentence. So it, it, it's a rather short sentence, uh, and um, it obviously refers here to a disturbing fact, one that uh, most people wouldn't necessarily know uh, about or associate with uh, with the name of Newton. Um, and, and I'll let you comment on this, but I, I think if I were to play devil's advocate, I would I might say, well... Yes, possibly, um, but isn't that all very just coincidental? How does that fit into the history of of science, really? How does that inform or changes our understanding of what science is and how it's how it's developed? Right? I might just say that well, yes, Newton was just part of his time, and he engaged in a form of economy that we obviously today find horrifying. Um, but how does that how does that fit into the history of science? Yeah, re- really good question. You're right. Re- rhetorically, I start with that short sentence: Isaac Newton invested in the slave trade because it is just a basic fact um, that he did invest um, the equivalent. Um, what well, invested about twenty thousand um, pounds at the time in the South Sea Company, which the main purpose of the South Sea Company was that it had a monopoly on the uh, British slave trade to Spanish America. So his money financed the transportation of enslaved people to Spanish America. That So we know that. That's a fact. Um, you're right. Then you might say, well, Newton was a wealthy um, English gentleman. So what would you expect? He was like every other wealthy English gentleman engaged in this um, abhorrent thing, but there's nothing special about him in that respect, and it doesn't really relate to the history of science. Uh, however, as I show in the chapter, it's, it's actually not coincidental. It's in fact, as a number of historians have argued over the last decade, his investment in the South Sea Company, but also in other overseas imperial trading companies like the East India Company, those were directly connected to the sources of information that he relied upon to write his famous work, the Principia Mathematica, um, in which he sets out the laws of motion. And this is something um, Simon Schaffer in particular made the case for in an article um, about 15 years ago. And I went through both that article, but also the Principia again to identify some of the additional sources of information. And Newton famously, he wasn't traveling around the world. He wasn't like Charles Darwin on a beagle voyage. He was sat for most of his life, either in Cambridge or in London. So he didn't travel very far, but he was trying to develop this universal theory of gravitation. And it's a much, it's a pretty complex theory, actually. It sounds simple, but Gravity varies in its strength, the acceleration across the Earth because of the curvature, the uneven shape of the Earth. 
uh, and Newton needed to explain this and, and measure it. He basically needed loads of data points to argue the case for his equations, for particularly for things like the gravitational uh, equation. And if he wasn't traveling, he needed to get the data from somewhere. And the places he got the data were from slave traders traveling aboard ships to West Africa and the Caribbean, from East India Company officers uh, who were stationed in the Bay of Bengal or in the South China Sea. And it's only through Newton's actually personal connections, which are also financial connections to this world of slavery, to this world of imperial trade, which allow him to collect all the information, which is, which is directly included in the Principia, to make his case that gravity should be understood in this way and that these equations um, explain um, the force and acceleration of gravity. So to put it counterfactually, which is another kind of unpopular thing for historians to do, but I think um, Newton, well I do, in fact I write this in the book, Newton could not have developed his theory of universal gravitation without those connections to the slave trade and imperial trade. Uh, which which also explains why it is Newton at that time, why it's not somebody else earlier or somebody, say, in China at the same time. It's not because China has a fundamentally different culture or that people in the medieval period were stupid. It's because it's only in the early 17th century uh, that someone can, um, so the mid-17th and the early 18th century, that someone can bring all that together and the only place they can bring all that together is if you are a wealthy gentleman in britain who's invested in the slave trade that's it, it i think we're going back here to maybe what, what you mentioned at the beginning of the, the interview the fact that as you go further right the the book seems a little bit grimmer and grimmer the picture seems a little grimmer and grimmer i think it's illustrated here by you know the the the, the you know the transition from the tomato to 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 this question of of newton and i think it it only raises again that question of what do we do with that new narrative right and what's therefore then the um the the ethical responsibility of the historians of science who are crafting these uh these uh these narrative and trying to make sense of that history and all these facts uh once we know that right uh but i I'm still reserving my this this for, for the last part of the interview I'm just trying to build the momentum and try to uh so we can have really a sense of purpose in that in, in that when we're trying to answer that question uh but um the, the the next question i'd like to ask is a little bit um more uh light-hearted but it's um because your book is so rich and tells so many different stories and paints so many different pictures um and i would like to know just from a from a, a personal perspective on uh, going through your research what was maybe one of the one of the stories you picked up um, in investigating that global history of science that uh, particularly uh, surprised you um, or or that you found maybe the most evocative for you uh, to uh, to tackle that global history of science? Yeah, fun fantastic question. I, I might just very briefly try and talk about two things. So the thing I found most, um, not surprising, but I guess most satisfying and important that I 
put into the book and put a lot of work into was the story of the scientific revolution in West Africa. So including um, West African kingdoms, particularly the Songhai Empire, as part of that broader story of, say, like Ottoman, Mughal, uh, Ming, and West African science. Because even in the secondary literature that I was relying a lot on, there was just nothing about West Africa. And I didn't want the story of African science to start with Newton investing in the slave trade. Um, so that was the sort of maybe the most personally important thing that I was trying to do. In terms of individual stories um, that resonate with me, uh, I guess I like some of the bleak stuff in the 20th century. So something um, like the um, Russian biologist Ilya Meshnikov I have a discussion about how the world in which he lived, one of war, one of disease, his wife had died from um, a pandemic, the Russian Tsar was engaged in all these brutal wars and expanding, um, he himself suffered from really serious depression and had tried to commit suicide once. And then linking this to his vision of evolution, but at the level of um, bacteriophages and white blood cells in the body. And I have probably my favorite line of the book is that for Ilya Meshnikov, the body was just another battlefield. And for me, that sort of captured the essence of how a period of world history in this quite place quite a dark period of world history could impact someone at a quite individual emotional level but also be reflected um in their world of science um but yeah and that resonated me with me personally for for many reasons i think one one of the yeah the, the greatest feature feature of the book is is obviously this it makes the I, I think it gives a chance to the readership to really understand the uh, the variety of scales at which we can study the history of science, and I think that is maybe something that was that it was clearly missed in uh, the traditional picture, the sense that well you could kind of over you can go over history in the past remaining at the same altitude and you'll pretty much get what there is to get right. Whereas here, we get a sense that it requires mobility, flexibility. Uh, it requires efforts, as well, of course, efforts of, you know, finding the facts, finding the sources, but it also requires efforts in imagining uh, just, you know, a, a frame to better understand either individual stories and how they fit into a national story and how this nation also fits into a global world. So I, I think to me this um this this was also one of the to me one of the most interesting feature of the book. It was not so much to uh, craft one picture of the global history of science, but more so provide I don't know a sort of um a, a, a toolkit, right? The, the idea that well there there are many ways to investigate it, and it's it's this giant foreign land that we can just you know dive into and. Uh, you know, and 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 explore in di in different ways and from different viewpoints. Um, so 
I would like now to address the elephant in the room, right, that we mentioned since the very beginning, right? Uh, the fact that this book is not just about the history of science, but also underlying here is the theme of the historian, the place of the historian of science in it. And, and I would like to tackle this question uh, from a particular place because you explained that the myth of, the, the, of science as a European enterprise, right, exclusively European enterprise, was in great part the products of efforts led by historians of science, right, uh, from uh, the mid uh, or second half of the 20th century, or some, some part of, of, that, of that period. Um, so, so, so this is intriguing here, right? Because uh, this raises really the question: What changed in the profession of historians of science? Maybe what changed in their position in regards not only to the past of science, but also in regards to how uh, they value their narrative and what uh, and what they should bring, uh, not only to scientists but to a greater audience as well. Uh, Yes, how, how are we to evaluate, right, this new global history of science, right, that, that this picture, this way of, of framing it that, that you're providing it um, to the reader and that you're also, you know, sharing all that scholarship that's been happening. How are we supposed to see it if we've recognized at the beginning of the book that there's been some shortcomings from historians of science as well? So... This must have been some sort of change, maybe, or a shift as well, not only in the sciences, but in the history of science as well. Yeah, it's a fantastic question. And I feel like we're, I mean, we're still in that shift. Partly what my book does is bring together a lot of scholarship and try and present the moment we're at. And also, I liked your description as a toolkit. That's how I see a lot of my work, actually, as a sort of example of what you can do. It's not supposed to be the last word on the history of science or the global history of science. It's supposed to be a way of doing it, a collection of this material that shows it is possible. Uh, in terms of the role of the history, like I guess the role of the historian of science in society, Historians of science have always thought they had some sort of role in society and some kind of ethical mission. If you think about early 20th century historians of science like George Sarton, they were, the discipline of the history of science was founded on this idea that we needed to have a history of science, and in Sarton's case, quite a global history of science, in order to rescue humanity from the ills of the early 20th century, from nationalism, from world wars, from disease, etc. Uh, and a lot of them were motivated by either their kind of internationalism or their socialism. Uh, and even in the second half of the 20th century, there's a sort of more conservative historians of science that are either implicitly or explicitly motivated by their desire to craft a history of science that's going to help create a world of progress and modernity and prosperity in the West uh, and stop the kind of problems of, of the Soviet Union, etc. I do think it gets a bit more murky in the 80s and 90s because uh, I, I sometimes fail to see what the specific political and ethical project was. Um, there's a lot of critique, and I think the closest a lot of that comes to a really strong ethical and political project 
is some of the work that's actually marginalized. It's like, it's the work of feminist science scholars, of post-colonial science scholars. They clearly had a really strong politics um, uh, attached to their work. I, I see the history of science in that period as a bit like social and cultural history more generally, particularly in Britain. If you think about how after the post-war period, um, I can only speak really for British culture and British history, but it becomes much more insular. Someone like E.P. Thompson, working at the department where I work, um, writing about the making of the English working class, zooming into particular lives and has a lot of methodological value. But actually, E.P. Thompson, his father was a missionary in India. He knew about a, world, a, wider, a wider world of empire and global connection. But he was someone that kind of retreated from that. And I think that post-war retreat, particularly in Britain, from empire and from an acknowledgement of empire is part of the reason these histories became so insular, particularly in, in the Anglo tradition, which was sort of extended to the United States in the 80s. Um, so this is a long way of saying it's not that I think the history of science hasn't had a politics or an ethics. I just think the history of science needs a new ethics and needs a new politics for now for the things we might care about because what we were being taught and what we had as a narrative doesn't address the things that personally I care about and I think a lot of my generation and the generation after me now care about things like anti-racism things like um, global inequalities the legacies of empire the legacies of slavery uh, many of the topics I talk about in the book are um, these major political themes where the past now is continuing, the global and unequal past is bleeding into the present every day, but we don't have a history of science that is engaged enough with the public domain to really um, address those issues. The other thing I'd say is that historians of science kind of distance themselves increasingly from scientists. And on the one hand, that was a good idea because we didn't want loads of scientists writing their triumphant histories of science. But on the other hand, if you just completely divorce yourself from the world of science, then they go and get on with it themselves. And a lot of the work I'm, I'm doing at the minute is actually thinking about things like science curricula. Um, at schools, at universities, how to integrate the sort of stories that are in my book into how we teach our next generation of scientists. And particularly in Britain, there's a lot of discussion of the public understanding of science, this idea that the public need to better understand science and then they might trust it. Um, but what I really advocate for is that actually the problem isn't that that the public don't understand science. They need a better public understanding of the history of science. If the public understood, the public, the many publics broadly conceived, the ways in which these unequal histories have made modern science, then we could have a, a better conversation, a better policy to do with things like science education, like the role of scientific advisors in government, like how we address issues of racism and inequality in the sciences today. Um, so that's, those are the sort of my thoughts on that topic. I understand they're quite broad. <laughs> no, it's, it, it's fantastic because I, I think, um, you know, we, we've talked about, you know, how 
uh, you know, the challenge of writing a big picture story and, and, uh, first the rise of that, of that genre in the history of science. And then, and then it's kind of pulled back and now, and now it's, uh, I, I, I guess, right. It's, it, it's, it's trying to, to make a comeback, but obviously in a different way. Um, I, I think obviously raises the question of the visibility of historians of science and their, and, and, uh, and their voice, uh, within larger uh, social debates, right. And political debates. So I really appreciate you that, you know, um, clarifying what, what that means for you and, and what this book means for you, apart from, you know, the scholarship that it includes and all the, all, all the incredible stories that it shares as well. Um, let's, let, let's, let, let's conclude by, by, uh, just, just a, a little peek into, in, into the future. What, um, what, what are you currently maybe researching on or anything you would like to, and any project you would, you, you, you feel like sharing? uh maybe where this global history of science has led you yeah for the last year i've answered this question with i'm having a rest but actually um i've stopped resting and i am now going to try and write something uh, so i'm trying to write a uh, more academic history of the scientific revolution um it's a project called the scientific revolution as global history and it's essentially a much more theoretically deep and primary source based version of the first couple of chapters of horizons of the book i just wrote so i'm going into a lot more detail about how these early modern particularly non-european empires the ming the mughal the ottoman the mahika how they understood the relationship between um, their own science and other scientific cultures and their own past and the present scientific cultures um so doing a lot of fun reading about um the anthropology of history and uh, sort of theories of history and histories of history so that kind of thing lots of martial silence because yeah, it, it sounds almost like an, an almost an, an oxymoron right the the idea of a of a revolution of science, the scientific revolution as well, and, and then put right next to global history of science, right? These are two uh, major terms that don't seem to quite fit uh, automatically, at least. Um, yeah, that's my thing. You've noticed. I like uh, to find things that don't fit and then bash them together until they do. <laughs> well, this was, this was really fantastic. Thank you so much uh, for your time. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on, on Horizon, giving us your perspective on it and what it means for you as well. Thank you again. Yeah, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it too.